Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, we look at Correa's contract offer and the latest there, the end of the Brent Strom era, the Rockets improved play over the last week, and the Texans continuing to do Texans things. Joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen... In your nearly four decades covering sports, can you remember an NFL team causing five turnovers and only scoring nine, nine points? Uh, no, I cannot. That's, there's, a, there's your simple answer. No, I, I couldn't even think of a, you know, bygone era game where that's happened, Robert. The Texans were just so the Texans that they, they, they couldn't get out of their own way. Literally, they had guys tripping over each other. <laughs> uh, it was incredible. They had issues with timeouts and I mean, just every, it was just, th- this was as Texany as Texany gets. <laughs> well, and, and you know, these were two one in 17, uh, one and seven teams. It might as well be one in 17, right, Robert? That That's a pretty good assumption right there. But, you know, just to show you, you know, I live here in Austin, and the game was not shown on television here. I mean, of course, I know you got it in Houston. But, uh, yeah, who wants to show two teams who are 1-7 and seven playing in other markets here in Texas where the Texans are involved? And we kept thinking, you know, the Tyrod Taylor's going to be back. There's going to be more life to this offense. You know, and, and I think what this shows, Robert, is, yes, Davis Mills was part of the problem, but he certainly wasn't the entire problem. I mean, this team is just bad offensively. And what's worse is that the defense didn't play half bad. You know, the the defensive front looked really good, and they didn't give up any, like, major, huge, big chunk of yardage plays. So, yeah, that's what really stings here is the Texans' defense played pretty well considering, but the Texans' offense just kept shooting them in the foot over and over and over again. Yeah, I'd say the defense played pretty well. They cost five turnovers. And Tyrod Taylor, he was terrible. 23 for 42, 231 yards, zero touchdowns, three interceptions. He was sacked five times. Of course, one of those times, like I mentioned, his own guy trips him. Uh, But three interceptions, and we're going to get to the interceptions. There were some bad interceptions there. It wasn't just, oh, this is Tyrod Taylor being forced into bad interceptions because of this or that. There there was stuff that he, he wasn't forced into that... You know, he was the reason for, I saw the Dolphins celebrating after the game. Are, are you allowed to celebrate if you're Miami and you beat the Texans? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, Jacksonville finally won a game in the United States for the first time in what, a year and a half. That might be something to celebrate, Robert. But yeah, when you're only doing your second win of the season and you're Miami, um, probably not uh, something I'd be jumping up and down about. I'd be happy, sure, but... Yeah, they didn't win the Super Bowl, for goodness sake. David Johnson, 40 total yards Sunday between catching and receiving. But DeAndre Hopkins was inactive. Did Bill O'Brien win the trade this week? Um, Yeah, (laughs) those Bill O'Brien trades, man, they just keep coming back to haunt us, don't they? All right, let's get into this one. And uh, Oh, I forgot. One other thing that I learned on Sunday, among many, uh, with, with watching the Texans. Well, I didn't learn a lot about the Texans, but... Uh, just one of the things that I learned was Brennan Scarlett and Greg Mance are still in the NFL, but just like you would expect from a former Texan, Mance got hurt in the first quarter and didn't play the rest of the game. <laughs> yeah, and Brennan Scarlett really was not a, a major factor. So, uh, you know, not the only thing they had going for him is they were both on the winning team side. That's about it, Robert. Let's go through some of the possessions in this game, and we'll start from the beginning. And frankly, it looked good because three and out on – the defensive side of the ball for the Texans, Jonathan Grenard continues to play well, hits Jacoby Brissett as he throws on third down, forcing the incompletion. Offensively, oh my God, it was a great drive. And then Tyrod with an inexplicable throw that's intercepted in the end zone, a throw that he didn't need to make at that point, pressured on a corner blitz that David Johnson, our guy David Johnson, did not pick up. What else do you know about David Johnson? But, you know, it looked good. Until then. And then, you know, then they they know how to shoot themselves in the foot better than any team. Well, yeah, a couple things, Robert. On the interception, he he tried to force it in, and then he overthrew. I mean, he was overthrowing in that drive a couple of times. And so you you just knew (laughs) that something like that might happen. And sure enough, he got intercepted in the end zone, a pass he shouldn't have thrown. And you're talking about the blitz. I mean, Miami blitzed 
quite a bit throughout this game, Robert. I mean, I didn't count how many times, but it, it certainly, and it was one of those blitzes where they were bringing a lot of people. It wasn't just your usual blitz, and the Texans were not picking it up. You know, Taylor wasn't picking it up. The backs weren't picking it up. And on that particular series, yep, they didn't pick it up. And that's one of the other reasons that the interception happened. Well, they blitz, but there were some other issues with the offensive line. And I'm going to get to that in just a bit. But on defense, next drive, Texans not looking good. 12 plays, 80 yards, six-yard touchdown run by Gaskin. Dolphins up 7 and nothing offensively three and out. And one thing that's just become a Sunday Texans tradition. It's like church on Sunday. The Texans looked unorganized on offense and they have to take a needless early timeout. Yeah. How many times have we been saying that over the last several seasons? You know, the ghost of Bill O'Brien is still there apparently. And on that possession, you know, Taylor throwing incomplete to Cooks, it's like he he bounced the ball to Cooks. You know, it was like a ground ball in baseball. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. You, you can't complete a pass that way. So another really bad throw by Taylor there. The Texans' defense starts causing turnovers. Eric Murray interception when Brissett throws it into double coverage. Bad throw by Jacoby Brissett. Next drive on offense, did they take advantage of it? No, because of guess who? Anthony Eau some chump that they got from the Patriots, gets called for a holding, which he seems to do bad stuff on a weekly basis, and he doesn't do good stuff too often, and that basically shuts down the drive. Yeah, just the, the Texans, the, the mistakes every week. I, I can tell you right now, Robert, they were fortunate that they were playing the Dolphins because it wouldn't be 17-9. to 9. It, It'd probably be something like, you know, 45-9. to 9. As many mistakes as the Texans keep making week after week, you know, you, you play a team that's also 1-7, and seven, and they don't even have Tua Tagovailoa in there. He's hurt again. Brissett, I mean, he seems to save his best for the Texans. That's for darn sure. He did it with Indianapolis, and he was doing it with Miami. But so many mistakes. My gosh. It, you know, it, it, they're lucky that they only lost 17-9. to nine. Yeah, Brissett made his mistakes. He, he did not look good in this he game. He did. He, he did, but I'm just saying, he, he, you know, he's all, in any other quarterback, the Texans might have actually won that game. Penalties, you know, we mentioned Anthony Eau Claire, eight penalties for 60 yards. Same old, same old, every single week. And David Culley's going to tell us, hey, we're going to correct it this time. No, you're not. We know you're not, so don't even talk about it. Uh, that leads to, defensively, Gruget Hill causing a fumble. Great job punching the ball loose. The Texans cause another turnover. And that leads to a touchdown? No, no, not the Texans. It's a turnover that leads to a Fairbairn and field goal. Seven to three, and that's that's our offensive MVP for the. Is, is there another offensive MVP for this one? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, how many didn't we say that before in another game where Fairbairn we, we gave it to him because he had all the points? Yeah, well, he had nine, so yeah, I guess he gets it again today. <laughs> Defensively, Texans three and out again, they're playing well in this one. Then offensively, one first down and punt. Tyrod's third down pass batted down, but AJ Moore causes a fumble on the punt return. So the special teams does something on the positive end. But then the Texans couldn't get a first down after the turnover. And we're back to rinse and repeat. Fairbairn kicks a field goal. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Amendola even threw a pass in that drive. And he, he couldn't even complete one. So I, I guess it didn't matter who was playing quarterback today. Yeah, he had a guy that was open for a second, but then it was knocked down. Uh, defensively, uh, 10 play 51 yard drive so they they finally start to wear down a little bit at the end of the half 42 yard field goal for the dolphins it's 10-6 but then Tyrod Taylor throws a terrible interception all he had to do Stephen, was throw it out of bounds but he flicks it downfield to where the defender can intercept it along the sideline just don't do the little flip like you're you don't care and you're not paying attention this is the all the little details that they do, the little stupid stuff that just, I mean, come on. Davis Mills has a disease. It's called inexperience. It must be contagious because Tyrod Taylor was making de decisions that inexperienced rookie quarterbacks make, and that was definitely one of them. I, I just, you know, what he should have done is just throw the ball away, but he was about to be sacked. He just kind of flips it, thinking he's going to throw it out of bounds, doesn't quite get there. You know, there's even an offensive holding call on the play. Of course, it was declined when the interception happened. He had gotten sacked on the previous play. I mean, it's just one disaster after another on this offense. Yeah, there were penalties in this game that the Texans didn't get called because the result of the play was so good, 
for the Dolphins that they didn't need to take the penalty. So you add that into the eight penalties that the Texans made. And of course, what else happens? That interception with the shortened field leads to a brissette to Matt Collins touchdown. So at 17 to six going into halftime, second half starts up. You think, okay, it's a new half. It's a new beginning again. But Tyrod's pass is tipped and intercepts and had a defender in the backfield, which forces a panic throw from Tyrod. And how many times, Stephen, were there defenders running towards the quarterback totally unblocked? And this is the epidemic of all epidemics with the Texans' offensive line this year. I have seen so many plays where one guy doesn't block anybody. He's standing there blocking air and just lets the guy right in front of him fly by him. I mean, it's just the offensive line training for the tech. I mean, we have talked about this ad nauseum, and it's never fixed. They cannot coach up this offensive line. And I get it. It's a lot of backups and whatever. But you see other teams you see other teams not do this type of stuff. It just it gets worse every week, Robert. It, it isn't even something that eh, maybe just a tad of progress or maybe they're just the same. It just it, This offensive line looks worse every week that they go out there. And it's as you said, it's not just one guy that's missing blocks. It's it's almost everybody. And yeah, we can talk about the patchwork line and you know the the bad breaks and things like that. But th- the fact of the matter is, Tyrod Taylor was under a lot of pressure the whole day. And when you miss blocks like that, I mean, it's no wonder he got sacked as much as he did. So the Dolphins can't take advantage after that. Uh, Malik Collins returns the favor with an interception on a tipped pass. So another tipped pass interception. Then on offense, Texans with a chance again after a turnover. But the possession is blown up when they called Amendola for a pick play on third and two after what would have been a 35-yard pass and catch to Rex Burkhead. There are so many plays that you watch from week to week with the Texans where, yes, they commit their share of penalties. But if the refs have a choice, they always choose giving the Texans a penalty when they don't necessarily have to give the Texans a penalty. This one was a little bit, you know, it it was just a typical NFL pass pattern where, you know, I don't know if that was really a pick play because Amendola didn't, it looked like extend his arms or it didn't look like he purposely was running into him, but who knows? I mean, it it might've been, I don't know. Yeah. Amendola definitely had an uncharacteristically bad game. You know, with a penalty, he dropped a pass that he should have caught. And that was yet, you know, just another thing that he did for a, a wide receiver who's a veteran. I mean, he's he's definitely on the backside of his career, but I, I didn't think he would be this bad when the, when the Texans signed him you know, right before the season started. Yeah, their veterans are just not doing veteran stuff. And But like I said, I don't know if that was really on Amendola. The defense after that forces a punt at midfield. So they're still holding their own here. They're still holding their water. Throughout this offensively 14 play 91 yard drive. It's looking really good. They get to the two yard line and it's fourth down and they kick a field goal with Fairbairn. Would you have kicked the field goal there? No, I would not. And I'll tell you why, because as few times as the Texans were able to penetrate the red zone, especially that deep into it, I would have tried to go for the points. I'd I'd try to go for the touchdown at this point. Yes. I know you're on the road and, and all that, but when you're struggling as much as the Texans offense does, what's three points really going to do you in the long run? I would have gone for the touchdown there, Robert. Yeah, they, they are going to need two scores, a field goal, a touchdown, and a two-point conversion. I guess you could argue it if it was a team that actually has a chance to do something this year. They don't right, have a chance right. to do anything this year. So why not just show some confidence in your offense? Let's see what we can do in this kind of situation. We don't need to get short field goal practice for Kaimi Fairbairn. We just don't. No, we certainly don't. And yeah, if if the offense were really moving the ball and you think, okay, well, maybe if they just, you know, the defense can hold like they've been doing, they get the ball back and maybe try to make another score. But yeah, I just, I was a little surprised that they didn't just go ahead and go for it on that play. I mean, yeah, you, you could argue that, you know, if they couldn't even make short, some short yardage situations, they probably wouldn't have made that one either. But what the heck, you know, you're down 17 to nine. So what that, you know, might as well do something. And you're boring the hell out of us fans, not to mention that, too. Well, there is that. 
they they end up on defense getting what else? Another turnover. Jacob Martin strip sack fumble. Great individual work by Jacob Martin on that play. Malik Collins, big game for him, recovers it. Offensively, did they take advantage of it? No, they punt at midfield because Tyrod, as he's going back to pass and play action, trips over Rex Burkhead, costing the Texans 12 yards on first down. Only the Texans. Only the Texans. I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on. And I tell you, Robert, it's it's such a shame because these guys on the defense, you know, Levy Smith does so much and has, you know, even starting in training camp, preaching about getting that fist in there. And I mean, lots of these guys are doing that. It's not just one player who's really picked it up. You know, they're getting the fist in there and punching that ball out every chance they get. And it just, it's sickening that it wasn't rewarded with better play from the offense today. Lovey hasn't been perfect, but considering the lack of talent and the just garbage team this is, he's done a really good job with these guys. And it looks like at times that the defense is just giving up a ton of points, but we know the offense just does no good with, you know, how they're handling things. Uh, The next drive for the Texans defense, one first down and punt. Maybe they were tired at this point in the game, but they still... Even as tired as they were, they still got the punt. They forced it. And so that leaves it back to the Texans offense to try to win the game. And what happens? Jordan Akins, who, Stephen, I've I've talked about just one mistake from Jordan Akins after another that's killed this team. And he does it again. He fumbles to finish off the game. It's the Texans' fourth turnover. Just terrible. Yeah, just terrible. And, the you know, the Dolphins challenged that call. You know, they they made another kind of a puzzling challenge where – they challenged a two-yard completion, and they lost that. But this one they got right, and it definitely made sure that the Texans weren't going to come back in this game. So, yeah, Aikens, just a, another another player that you scratch your head and go, where is his head? Where is his head in, in this season? And, you know, as the losing keeps going on, Robert, as much as I hate to say it, it it's stuff like this is probably just going to keep happening. I just think all these guys are out of focus, and, and they're just, you know, as time goes on, it, it's only going to become more like that. If you look at your offensive MVP candidates, you know, there's no Ingram this week. So we saw some Philip Lindsay until he got hurt, eight carries for 28 yards, receiving Brandon Cooks again with the most catches, six catches, 56 yards. He was the star. Uh, Chris Conley had a good catch early in the game, and then he dropped one that was costly. On one of their drives, it was a perfect throw by Tyrod Taylor. In stride, hits him right in the chest. He drops it. Nico Collins, three catches, 25 yards. One of them was really good, one-handed catch. There were yeah. offensive you know, stuff here and there where this guy or that guy, but I, I, I don't know who to give it to except for Kaimi Fairbairn's <laughs> offensive MVP. Yeah, I tell you, you're really it, – it's sad when you keep giving it to your kicker week after week because he's about the only one scoring points. I and, mean, you know, he's he's probably got more field goals than the Texans do touchdowns at this point, Robert. Defensively as an MVP, maybe Neville Hewitt, who came in out of nowhere. He was the starter with Christian Kirksey going on the IR. Yeah, that's my guy. That That's my guy. Sam and Andy. I like the looks of him. Ten tackles, uh, six solo. Although, what about – Malik Collins had a pretty good game. He did. And, you know, Grenard, he knocked down another pass. And Lopez, you know, had was in on some sacks. So, yeah, the defense, once again, Robert, we've said this, you know, more than once. It, it's a lot tougher to pick the defensive MVP than it is the offensive MVP. With a, with, but that's a good problem on the defensive aspect. But, yeah, I mean, Hewitt making the splash the way he did, I got to give it to him. I'm going to go off the radar a little bit. A guy that we haven't mentioned at all so far, Jordan Jenkins is my defensive yeah. MVP. He had one and a half sack, two tackles for losses, and three quarterback hits along with four tackles, uh, two solo. So good game for him. Yeah, I like it. I can't argue with that. So uh, yeah, I think that's a good pick. And you know, with some of these, like with Omenahue getting traded, it's going to open up opportunities for more of these guys to step in. And that's what you're hoping for. Do you want to say anything else? Are you ready to move on and get rid of this embarrassment of the Texans game? Well, you know, Robert, I, I mean, normally I'd say, hey, let's move on to the Astros because they're still playing. Well, nope, they're not still playing. I mean, there's, you know, Astros are in the news, but but yeah, we might as well move forward because there's there's really nothing else to say about this game except that, gosh, you hope Tyrod Taylor was just rusty from 
all the weeks he's been out because I, that definitely was not the Tyrod Taylor I was expecting to see. Yeah, he just was not doing smart things out there. And before we move to the Astros, though, we, we got to stay in football because there is a team in Houston that's doing the exact opposite of the Texans. While the Texans lost their first one or won their first one, lost eight straight. The Cougars lost their first one, won eight straight. But U of H made it a little too interesting Saturday night. They beat a two-win South Florida team, 54-42, kind of a shootout. Didn't realize that Marcus Jones played for South Florida, Stephen. The Cougars gave up two touchdowns on kick returns. That's three in the last two games. Yeah, and weren't they both a 100-yard return? I mean, they were like coast-to-coast, basically. And I have to tell you, Robert, because I was out most of Saturday and didn't see the U of H game, um, didn't see the Longhorn game either, which was probably a good thing. But when when I first saw the Cougars score, I, I, I did a double take. I'm like, wait. Is Cougar basketball? St- I know it's starting, but was that the Cougar basketball game? Fifty-four to forty-two, pretty low scoring, but uh, yeah, that was definitely a bit. You know, the Cougars certainly were. I, I think they were the first team that I can think of, anyway, where you had two running backs over a hundred yards and two receivers that had over a hundred yards and catches. I mean, it was some offensive show, and Clayton Toon once again coming through. I had my doubts about him initially, Robert. But it seems like ever since he got hurt and came back from that injury, he's really looked good, especially the last couple of weeks. 385 yards passing on only 26 attempts. So, you know, did a lot with not a lot of throws. Three touchdowns, zero interceptions. That's a big number for you. Alton McCaskill was back after going out with an injury last week. You were worried about him, but he comes back. 22 carries, 125 yards. Tayshawn Henry, Lamar High School kid helped with a 97-yard touchdown run. McCaskill and Henry combined for 255 yards on the ground. Marcus Jones, who we mentioned earlier, he didn't get a return for a touchdown, but he almost had an interception for Well, he had an interception for a touchdown and not a smart thing by one of his teammates who held the quarterback after the interception when the quarterback <laughs> had no chance to get Marcus Jones. Yeah. Marcus Jones was by the quarterback at that point, but it was a holding penalty. You look at the replay and it was an obvious hold there. Not, not necessary or Marcus Jones would have had another touchdown on the way, way, Robert. I I thought we were done talking about the Texans and making stupid penalties. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, that's, (laughs) you're still throwing in Texans things. It's just not the Texans, but you know, fortunately that mistake did not cost U of H in their game. Let's go to the Aggies because More good football news. Their defense just shut down 13th-ranked Auburn. They gave up 226 yards total. That's it. They were ranked 27th nationally in total defense coming into this one. Still looking good. They need Bama to slip up to get to the SEC championship game. And ironically, Auburn, the team that they faced, is Bama's only real obstacle between now and then. Yeah, I don't see that happening. And of course, Auburn and Alabama, it's kind of like Texas and OU. You, you never know how that game's going to go. But I, that really was the biggest surprise to me, I think, Robert, is the way the Aggies just handled Auburn. You know, the teams were pretty evenly ranked. I think the Aggies were 14th and Auburn was 13th. But man, what a great performance by the Aggie defense. As uh, you know, now they're, they, they kind of got off to a slow start at the beginning of the season. But uh, they're picking things up, and they're certainly rolling, and that was definitely an impressive win. And their offense wasn't helping out the defense a whole lot because their offense wasn't moving the ball, scoring a bunch of points. It was all on the Aggies' defense in that game. Just a really stellar job. The Ags got to take care of their business, though. Next week, they get Heisman candidate Matt Corral in the Grove. Wish I could be in Oxford for that when I covered Ole Miss for a couple of years when I worked in Memphis, and it was a fun place to go. Uh, Let's finish off with the Longhorns. And tell me if you've heard this before. The wheels came off the Longhorns train in the second half. Yeah, um, I'm starting to have problems counting, Robert, because but but luckily, you know, I I have uh, places to go where I can find that stuff out. But that's four weeks in a row now. Yeah, I can count to four at least that that's happened to the Longhorns. Now, granted, it was only seven to three at the half. You know, it wasn't a 14 or 21 point lead. When you're saying the wheels are coming off the cart, Robert, I I have to tell you, it's not just on the field. I mean, there is just some utter chaos going on in Austin. 
where even off the field, I, I, you know, losing gets to you after a while, especially if you're, you know, college kids, they don't like to lose any more than, than the pro players do. You had a blow up during the week with Joshua Moore, one of the wide receivers, basically having a, a verbal altercation with Steve Sarkeesian. So, you know, that put him out. And then you have a guy, Terrence Cooks, who's going to transfer, putting himself in the transfer portal. It's it, the wheels are definitely coming off the cart in Austin, Robert, in more ways than one. And again, the offense just can't get things going. Five possessions in a row in the second half, three and out. And the defense isn't playing particularly well. But look, you keep putting them out in the field like that. That's what's going to happen. So Iowa State, I mean, it took them a while to roll in the second half, but it ended up 30-7. to seven. If you just looked at the score, you went, man, they dominated from start to finish. Well, no. They didn't, actually. Iowa State, they, they kind of tried to give the game to Texas in the first half. But once they realized that uh, they were still in it, they took control. They're also wasting one of the best running backs that we've seen in UT history. He's fun to watch, and you don't get those guys very often, of course. And, yeah, that sucks if you're a Longhorn fan because you're, you're, you're wasting a really important season for him, and, and you're not going to get to see him in, at UT very long. No, and you're talking about B. John Robinson, of course. Now, he did have a fumble because he tried to get extra yardage, but that's what B. John Robinson does. I mean, that's one of the, you know, more often than not, that's what's going to make him such an effective back is that he can just carry you. You want to get on the horse and ride? Well, he'll ride you. And he had a fumble, and ultimately, you know, with 30-7, to seven, that certainly wasn't the difference maker. But, you know, when when you keep losing your focus in the second half, Robert, it's it's disturbing, and you can't put the blame all on the players, you know, that – yeah, it's a lack of focus, but some of that's got to point back to the coaching. At, at some point, you've, you've just got to – you can't have that many weeks in a row where you just totally collapse. It's like you, you've got to play 60 minutes. No question about it, and you, I don't know if they're going to figure it out. It's like the Texans figuring out their penalty issues. Uh, you just don't know if it's ever going to happen this year for the Longhorns, and we're going to stay with the Orange because – I know everybody's been waiting for us to talk about this. A couple of major Astros stories. While you and I were recording the last show, Brent Strom announced after the World Series loss, and, and we mentioned this is a possibility, that he's stepping down for the, from the Astros, said he had a conversation with James Click a month ago, isn't retiring yet. So this is not the end of his career, potentially, but he's not coming back with the Astros. He also said... It had something to do with the Astros pitching coaches, Josh Miller and Bill Murphy, who he thought would leave the organization potentially for a better job. So Brent Strom being unselfish. I don't know if that was James Click kind of pushing him into being unselfish. That's what we don't know. And Stephen, he talked about wanting to have a summer laying on the beach, but Stromy also didn't rule out taking another job. What do you read into all of this? Uh, what I read into it is that he's not done, Robert, and I think he was just done with the Astros. And look, if if it was the way that it sounds, it isn't surprising. I mean, that's just that that's the kind of thing Brent Strom does. He that he's going to step aside, you know, for the good of these one of these two guys. You know, is probably going to be named the pitching coach. And uh, you know, I, look, I'm as sorry as anybody that Brent Strom is leaving. Absolutely, I have always been a Brent Strom fan since he's been with the Astros what a system he has developed and just what a rapport that he has with these pitchers. But what I do think, Robert, is, yeah, I, I think you will see Bernstrom in another uniform. And what I also think is that he's got this system in place, and if they do take one of these two guys, you know, whether it's Miller or Murphy, and put him in as pitching coach, the system's already there. You're not going to have the Bernstrom, perhaps, but I still think that the Astros have a good chance to remain if they can just get the right pitchers in place, obviously, relevant in the conversation when you're talking about postseason and good pitching. But, yeah, still sad regardless that Brent Strom is not going to be an Astro. I mean, I've certainly gotten used to that. There was an article in a St. Louis paper a few weeks ago, not a few weeks ago, I think it was just a couple weeks ago, where Stromy said, hey, don't forget about Jeff Luno. Give him credit. Remember, Strom came over from the Cardinals with Luno he thinks that Luno is the reason for all of this, and he's right, but it, it was interesting that he he sort of wrapped Luno on his way out the door. Uh, let's go to the other major story, because one report has the Astros offering five years, $160 million. Another report, six years, 
$210 million, which is roughly 35 a year. Neither seems like a long enough contract. Jim Crane was quoted as saying, everybody knows what we need. We need a shortstop. We need some pitching and maybe another player or two. In other words, we need a shortstop, Stephen, because our current one is gone, gone, gone. Yeah, I, I just don't think that's going to be enough, Robert. Carlos Correa, you know, in most of the free agent lists that I look at, he is number one. I mean, I'm, as in number one of everybody, not just among shortstops. He's the guy. You know, he's the leader on and off the field. You know, he comes through in the postseason for the most part. He's going to command the kind of salary that I just don't think the Astros are going to step up for. You know, the only thing that you could stop and say, well, maybe there's a chance is if there's a work stoppage and things go helter-skelter, you know, with the players and owners. If if there's going to be a work stoppage, it's probably going to be the owners locking the players out. So who knows what that's going to do to free agency? So, you know, if you're if you're an Astros fan that's clinging to any kind of hope you can to keep from drowning and losing Carlos Correa, that's probably it. Because I, I just don't think that either of those offers you just quoted is going to be enough to keep him. So what I did is decide to look at what alternative shortstops would be out there for the Astros. I'm going to throw out some names. I'll give it to you one at a time, Stephen. You can see what you think. The Blue Jays, Marcus Simeon. He's a free agent, 31 years old. Probably is going to require a little bit of shorter contract than Correa. Has a career 768 OPS, but it was 873 this past year. Do you like Marcus Sim? He seems like the most obvious choice because it would be a short I would, contract. He would be my lead guy. Yeah, but the short contract, but I think he still has some upside. You know, he's only 31, so there's still some upside. But you're certainly not going to give a, a 10-year contract, I don't think, to a guy like him. He would probably be the one, you know, that, that I would jump on and say, if you're going to sign a free agent shortstop for much less money than what Correa would command, Marcus Simi would probably be my choice. The Rockies' Trevor Story, 28 years old, career 863 OPS, although that was in Mile High, Colorado. Got to remember that. Right. He's been a multiple all-star. It's worth noting, though, that his OPS, let's forget the Colorado stuff for a second, his OPS mm -hmm. in 33 plate appearances at Minute Maid is 933. So he's had success in Houston. All right. Well, you know, if you have success in Houston, that that might actually do something. And he is a bit younger. He's 28. So that that's certainly a plus. I'd say you, you've got to put him up there with Simeon for sure. I'd assume the Dodgers' Corey Seager is going to get close to Correa money. So I'm marking him off the list. Yeah, Let's go so. to Javi Baez, 28 years old. The only other really big name, career 783 OPS. But keep this in mind. Outside of a weird COVID year in 2020, his OPS has been over 800 for the rest of the last four seasons. So three of the last four, his OPS is over 800. Javi Baez, maybe, but Marcus Simeon would still be your guy. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say Javi Baez is probably third. I, I don't know. I, I think he's one of those guys that, you know, I remember he came through when the Cubs won the World Series a little while back, certainly. I just think, yeah, I, I have to go with Simeon. As as my number one story was is that who we said and then the number three would be Baez. It seems like Story and Baez would probably be longer contracts than maybe the Astros would be comfortable with. So if it's not Simeon, you know, you just go with Jeremy Pena, your young guy. You hope he works out. And and of course, the thing with Jeremy Pena is if he's struggling early in the year. You have a Ledmus Diaz, and you could send him down to the minors, maybe have him work on stuff, or maybe you could just start him in the minors and let him get it going a little bit because he didn't play a whole lot this year with an injury and get his feet wet down there for a month or so and then bring him up once you feel like he's a little bit more in rhythm and a little bit more comfortable. But Jeremy Pena, to me, could be the real thing that you want to do because you might want to save that money for pitching and pitching and pitching. And more pitching. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. You, you took the words right out of my mouth, Robert. You know, the, the thing about Pena is, yeah, he had that broken wrist before the season started. But, man, he came back strong toward the end in AAA. And I've even seen some numbers where he's just started playing in the uh, Dominican League and is putting up some great numbers. So, I mean, I really think that he's the guy that is probably going to be the front runner that, you know, they very well may decide, look, we're going to cash in all our chips on Pena. As you said, you do have Diaz, who is – arbitration eligible, 
But I expect to see him back, that he could possibly start there, and then you just bring Pena in, provided he gets off to a good start. And and throw a lot of this money that you would have spent on a Correa, you know, on a Simeon or a Story or someone like that, and put it into some pitching, because you, you certainly have some pitchers that are going to command some high salaries with free agency as well. Yeah, I, I think in a coming podcast, you and I are going to get into some pitching candidates. Maybe you can do a little research on that, Stephen, and come up with some pitching candidate for us in the next few weeks. Yeah, I started writing some names down and, you know, have a, a pretty good list here. But, you know, there, there's a lot of ifs, and especially with pitching, there's, there's always ifs with every single one of these guys because you just don't know. I mean, they're one pitch away from blowing their arm out or just the, the ineffectiveness sets in. Pitching is, is just so hard to determine. But there are some guys out there, some intriguing names. You know, absolutely, there's, there's quite a few of them. So it could be where the Astros throw the boatload of their money, and you certainly couldn't blame them if that's what they decide to do. So not, not much else with the Astros, Stephen? It's safe to say we can move on from them? Yeah, I think so. You know, we just need to keep an eye on – I mean, well, we do know Yuri Gurley, uh, Yuli Gurley is coming back because they, he did take the club option, so he's going to be coming back. So that's another guy that you are going to have in the fold one more year, certainly. Um, but, you know, that's a position down the road I certainly think the Astros need to start thinking about at least as Gurriel gets older – you know, what are you going to do about first base? But for this year, yeah, I'd say shortstop and pitching, that that's your big deal. And you might see another player, maybe another outfielder, you know, maybe uh, perhaps uh, another infielder that might go in the mix that you aren't thinking about. Yeah, and it's also worth noting because we're we're doing this again Sunday afternoon. It's, it's a big thing that we're doing this Sunday afternoon because Correa might be getting his first gold glove later tonight. So by the time you guys hear this, uh, we might have a Carlos Correa gold glove in Houston. So that, that's another thing that's happening with Correa. But, but before we get into the Rockets conversation, need to note that we're recording this prior to the Golden State game Sunday night. So again, keep all that in mind. We're, we're trying to get it all over with after we've dealt with the Texans for the after. You don't want to ruin <laughs> a whole day by, okay, let's wait till at night, Stephen, uh, until we get into the tech. We, we just want to get our Texans venom out there and over with as soon as the game is done <laughs> well that's right and you know what we we talk about the rockets and yeah i know the rockets are is downtrodden as far as wins you know they've won lost what seven in a row but here's the difference the rockets are playing with intensity now can they keep it up over an 82 game season i don't know but you gotta say they are putting themselves in position to win games multiple games robert and you know, we we had the, the Denver game on Saturday that they could have won. So, you know what? If you keep putting yourselves in that position, at some point, it's got to pay off for you. you you got to believe that it's going to. You know, if these, these are young guys, and they're just still having to learn a lot of things. But I like the way the Rockets are scrapping and are at least trying to win games. Unlike the Texans. Yeah, I guess they're trying to win, but it just doesn't look like it on the field. And if anybody missed it because they were focusing on the Astros in the World Series— what Steven is mentioning is two missed shots at the buzzer cost them the Lakers and the Nuggets wins. And they controlled the game against defending conference champ Phoenix until late in the third quarter when the wheels fell off. So three very competitive games against good teams, although the Lakers, it's a little bit of a question mark with them right now. My apologies also on a mistake that I made in our last show. I heaped praise on Silas for pulling Tice out of the starting lineup. And as our listeners, <laughs> I was wondering when you were going to get to that. <laughs> and as our listeners know by now, he was out with an injury, which I missed as I was also trying to watch the World Series. I'm sure everybody understands that. I'm going back and forth, and I missed the fact that he was just out with an injury. But before I pile on Silas and Tice, which I have done, I got to say Silas had a great game or I'm sorry Tice had a great game against Jokic Saturday and well Silas did too because they were able to keep it close and that was easily Tice's best game of the season he's got to be able to keep that up and he was a good matchup against Jokic which is a guy that you figure he's going to be able to handle as a veteran more than somebody like Shangoon. Well, now, in your defense, Robert, that's right. It, it was one game and uh, Tice had 18 points and that's great. He's going to have to do that more often and, you know, play games like that. Yeah, if you look at Jokic's numbers, 28 points, 14 rebounds, you might say, well, I mean, did he really do a good job on him? Yeah, he did, especially in the fourth quarter. I think a lot of those shots, you know, a lot of those points came before the fourth quarter. He really held him down 
and and gave the Rockets a chance to win that game, which they would have done, except for the, the Jokic block shot at the very end that Jayshon Tate took that uh, might have pulled it out. So, yeah, Daniel Tice had a good game, but he's going to have to do more than that, obviously, I think, before you're going to really start eating some crow, Robert. I want to send out a little heart emoji to K.J. Martin because I had mentioned him the last show. He continues to play well. He continues to get minutes. He needs to continue to get minutes. PER is a little bit of a controversial stat. Not the best analytic stat, some say. But I still think it's worth noting that Martin leads the Rockets in PER at 20.14. That number is more than Luka, Devin Booker, and Jalen Brown. Three all-stars. Two of the better players in all of the NBA in Booker and and Luka. The best position on the team is small forward because of K.J. Martin and can't say enough about Jay Sean Tate playing fantastic defense, playing smart basketball for the most part. Uh, both of those guys do it on both ends of the floor. Daniel House still out with an injury, but let's keep our fingers crossed that he doesn't play again unless there are other injuries that force Daniel House to play because I, I love what they have at small forward. It's the best position on the team. And let's not forget Eric Gordon, the way he's playing. And, uh, you know, if again, if Eric Gordon can stay healthy, Eric Gordon can continue to do Eric Gordon things. I believe he's like in, in three-point percentage. He's among the top in the league. So let, let's, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the young guys as well. We should, because they're going to be the makeup of this team, the, the majority of it. And we don't know what Eric Gordon's future is. You know, is he going to be traded at the, at the trade deadline? But right now, he's doing well, too. So, you know, Jay Sean Tate, I mean, I'm like Jay Sean Tate ever since he started last season to make an impact. I love his hustle. He just seems to be in the right place at the right time. And as you said, he's playing some defense, which the Rockets could use every bit of that. Give Christian Wood some credit for his improvement this year in a couple of areas. And I don't like to look at career averages for my numbers, but I noticed this in Wood's per 36 minutes and his improvement there because per 36, especially for somebody like Wood that hasn't played a lot of minutes until last year and this year, I think that matters for where Christian Wood is right now. And for his career, he'd averaged 1.7 assists per 36 this year, 2.4 assists. Doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot. That's a nice improvement for him. He's passing the ball more and getting some assists off of that. And you don't get a lot of, hey, throw the ball to the guy on the three-point line for the Rockets, and he's going to knock it down. So uh, that that is impressive for him. For his career, he's also averaged 10.9 rebounds per 36. This year, so far, 13.6 rebounds per game in a, yeah. in a per 36 deal. What I don't like about Christian Wood was how he griped after the game against the Nuggets about not getting the ball in the offense more. Steven, he needs to keep that stuff in-house. There's some ego about the guy that very much is a red flag for me. No need to go public with something like that. That's a conversation with Silas and the coaching staff. Yeah, and this is not the first time he's done this, Robert. I mean, this has been a repeated thing with him. And and I think really it's, you know, it's kind of like, Kevin Porter Jr., a head thing where you you just got to put that stuff aside and play your game. The results will come. I mean, the rebounds thing is very impressive, you know, and, and a couple of the, you know, the assists, definitely. Those are things you can build on, but not if you're going to keep running your mouth. I mean, that's the thing. And And look, these are young guys that you're surrounded with, younger than you anyway. Be a good example to them. Show them what leadership really is. And, you know, don't let them follow that kind of example. Follow the example on the court. And, and the work ethic and that sort of thing. But that that's my biggest gripe against Christian Wood is that he just runs his mouth a little too much in the negative. And I just don't want it to start, you know, affecting these young guys, especially as the losing continues, because I think you and I both know, Robert, it is going to continue, even if the games are close, even if the Rockets are putting themselves in positions to win. So those are the little things that I think will make the difference in the long run. And that's what Christian Wood, I think, has to realize. Now the negative, where the Rockets are right now, the glaring weakness, the starting guards. Not Eric Gordon, like we mentioned. He's doing his job. But KPJ and Jalen Green, both shooting under 30% from three. They're combining to turn it over seven times per game. Both of them get the ball on the perimeter with one-on-one matchups, but have a hard time getting by their defender and creating an open shot. Let's go to Jalen because I've I've probably given enough to KPJ over the last year or so. 
Well, he was two of 15 in the Denver game, so you can just add on some more of that. It's all or nothing with Jalen. He's had a couple of super hot shooting games, but if the ball isn't falling early, he cannot get it going. He cannot get into a rhythm. Also, he's not giving you anything else. He doesn't do anything else. Three rebounds, three assists, poor defense. He's got the worst plus minus of any Rocket player at minus 10, just slightly worse than Tice. But Jalen Green's got to get something going, and it's real frustrating as you see some of these other rookies around the NBA that he said, I'm better than all of them. I should have been drafted number one. Steven, prove it. Show me that you're even better than the guys that were drafted right behind you, like Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes. Again, you know, it's it's a mouth issue. You, you got to put, if you're going to talk trash, you got to take out the trash. And right now that uh, Jalen Green is is not doing his part, taking out the trash. <laughs> and, you know, and that's the thing about his game. I think that, again, it's a mental thing. And if you, you know, there are some players that if a coach tells you just keep putting up the shots and they will fall and eventually they do, that's one thing. But, you know, is that going to be the case with Jalen Green? I, you know, it's too early to tell. But as you said, if it doesn't go well at the beginning, it's as if he just loses focus or loses confidence. And it's one of those things that I think the coaches really have to work with him on is that, look, you're going to go through ebbs and flows. You're going to go through peaks and valleys, especially when you're this young. We got to remember he's, you know, he's still a teenager, basically. So these are things he has to learn. And I think it's going to take him a little while, but it's still discouraging when you watch that sort of thing. You know, and it's the mental things that we watch as much as the physical things or the physical mistakes. The last guy that I want to mention just briefly, I've heaped a lot of praise on Shangun. There's things that he's got to do better. I quit getting into foul trouble. He cannot seem to get through a game without committing a bunch of stupid fouls that he doesn't need to commit. There are times where I think, oh, if he was a veteran, he might've gotten away with this one or that one. But He's so good. You want to see him play as many minutes as possible. But if you're getting in foul trouble every game, that's not going to happen. The second thing with him, when you're open, shoot the ball. Do not stand there and wait and wait and wait. He needs to just get the confidence going that I am going to make the shot. Let me shoot the ball. You're not going to be good in today's NBA unless you're a better shooter than Shangun is. He's going to have to learn how to shoot from three. He's going to have to learn how to shoot from mid-range because he's going to get the ball in the high post inside the three-point arc a lot. Those are things that they've got to get better. And it's a fact of of him understanding that, hey, I've just got to do it, you know, and, and that should be drilled into him by this coaching staff. Like you have got to just shoot the ball because when you hold it and there's nobody guarding you, all that does is get us a worse shot later in the shot clock. At least if you shoot it right there, we know that, we got to go get that rebound because you're open and our other players realize when you're open, the ball's going up and and he's got to figure that out. And and it's only eight games in, but I would have expected that to have been drilled into his head much sooner than it has, because I've seen this through all the preseason as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you know, this is what separates a great player is a confidence factor. Not only do you have to put in the work, and put up hundreds of shots a day if that's the shot you're working on. But you've got to have the confidence to know that if you do put it up, that you're going to make it. You know, the, the guys, I mean, we could go down the list, the LeBron James, Michael Jordan, whomever. That's really it, is that they have the confidence to know that no matter what the situation, you put the shot up. So that's something that Sengun has to develop. And if he can, I'm not saying he's going to be a, a superstar player necessarily, certainly. I'm not insinuating that at all. But that will make a difference in his shooting. I I I totally believe that. And I don't think he's going to be a bad shooter because usually a real good metric to see if a guy can shoot is free throw shooting. And it, it's early in his career, but he's shooting, let me see what it is, 76.7%. Yeah. Yeah. 76.7% from the free throw line. So if that's what you're shooting from the free throw line early in your career, and guys usually get more comfortable the longer they play, the longer they're in the league. He's going to be a good shooter. It's just a matter of having that confidence and, you know, just you, yeah. got, you you can't not shoot the ball because what happens in the NBA is when you don't do that, then everything goes wrong. You get three second calls in the paint from some guys that are waiting for you to shoot the ball. You get turnovers. Bad things seem to happen if you just sit there open and, and just hold on to the basketball. You know what? It's interesting that what we've been talking about the last few minutes with each of these players, Robert, 
I think you you can all point it toward the mental side as as much as, you know, if, if some of these guys have the physical skills, that's fine. But the mental side is what's really going to make the difference of whether this Rockets team moves forward and makes some strides, even if they continue losing and maybe start winning at some point. That's really it for me. I mean, I, I, if I point to one thing that this Rockets team has to do to get better is just work on the mental aspects of the game, along with, you know, obvi- the obvious physical skills and the fundamentals of shooting and defense and rebounding. But at least they're being competitive in recent games. Golden yes. State, we don't know. We don't know. So if it wasn't competitive <laughs> Sunday night, we're sorry about that. But three games against three pretty good teams, and they were competitive. They were competitive. That's all you can ask for. Uh, the Texans were competitive, sort of. <laughs> they, they kept it within a touchdown. <laughs> With the score, anyway. Yes, they were competitive. But just you you look at those products, Robert, and you just you, you compare the two. You can't really, but the Rockets are just playing with more intensity right now. And they've got younger players in there. The Texans have a lot of veterans that quite honestly are playing like rookies because they are just making so many silly mistakes that are shooting. You know, again, I I say the mental thing, I say it a lot, but that's what it is with the Texans, except it's going in the other direction. You mean you would rather have stupid rookies with real potential that they could get better than stupid veterans with no potential like the Texans. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe maybe I should have my head examined. Maybe it's a mental thing with me. I don't know. Well, until we talk to you guys next time, have a great week. We're going to have some really good guests coming up, so keep an eye out for that. We're going to start getting back into that after being Astros postgame-centric over the last month. But looking forward to seeing what the Rockets can do over the next uh, few months and how they develop. But uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.